man has the man has no pride, no dignity. I've often I've often preached against self-esteem, and I guess I've just demonstrated I have no no self-esteem, whatever. Well, thank you. Uh, I came here to listen, and you can, I've been working on that all morning. I can't get it straight around, but uh, well, at any rate, thank you. Uh, it is good to be here this morning, and uh, my privilege. I feel more like I do now than I did when I first got here, as I like to say. Uh, before I, I want to uh, actually preach this morning and insinuate a certain measure of sobriety into the proceedings here somewhere along the line, but uh, I, uh, there are a couple of things I'd like to attend to first of all. Uh, today is uh, one of those days that has been selected by some as the day of the second coming. Are you familiar with that? We are. This may be the last sermon you hear, if uh, <laughs> if that is in fact the case. So. Uh, uh, no, I, I just I just thought it would be uh, I, I like just I, I can't let it pass without saying very very quickly how dangerous I think it is to to mortgage your credibility of the future by that sort of thing. You know, I there has always been a great deal of date setting. Sometimes it has been uh, rather creative. Sometimes I think it's rather it's been rather uh, well. Well, the motivations have not been pure. I, I when I was in Minnesota, a gal came to me once and she brought me. Uh, this little book right here, When Will Jesus Come? She paid a lot of money for this book, like about six bucks for this little tiny pamphlet. And uh, she was really exercised because, according to this pamphlet, Jesus should come on October 30th, 1980. And all I remember is, no, no, I'm sorry, I got it backwards. This one came first. This was the one she brought me. And according to this pamphlet, Jesus should come on November 11th, 1979. And when she brought this to me, it was it was like September, or October, and it was Jesus was supposed, and she was quite exercised because she thought, man, if Jesus is going to come, then I ought to uh, I ought to be out doing other things, you know, other than being here in college. Which, by the way, brings up another point. He says, rudely interrupting himself, and that is something. I'm not kidding you. If you knew, listen, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, and that would motivate you to go do something that you're not doing, go do it. I mean, if if in fact there is something so pressing on your spiritual agenda that you would be busy about it if you knew Jesus was coming, but you're not being busy about it. That's wicked, right? But at any rate, uh, that's why she was she was uh, distressed. And she brought me this, and, and we spent some time, and again, the book says November 11, 1979. And I found myself uh, perhaps uh, uh, not all, altogether righteously praying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, but not on November 11th. Uh, you know, let's let's prove this guy wrong. But the interesting thing, November 11th came and went, and Jesus did not. And uh, about six weeks later, she came in with this book. And this book is almost identical. I mean, it's, you can go through it. It's almost identical, this little pamphlet. But this one, as I mistakenly read to you before, says that Jesus is going to come on October 30th, 1980. And again, he's getting a lot of money. Now, I picture this guy with a basement full of these boxes of these books, you know, marked uh, November 79, October 80, January 81. And uh, he's selling these things and making a good deal of money on it. And the fact of the matter is that beyond that, sometimes I think, as I say, when we, I think, and I have learned this from my, from my dear friend Dr. Pilkey, who has, I have sat at his feet and learned this, that uh, it's one thing to hope so aggressively for the reality of Jesus coming that sometimes you begin to measure events in the Scripture and, and so on to see if you can come up with some uh, 
some, some confidence of when he might come, but it's always a measure of hope, never of faith and dogma. And when you transmute it into a dogma, it seems to me you, you, you do, you, you do uh, you, as I say, you, you mortgage your credibility. And so I think it's a very dangerous mentality. And that's what's happening here. So as long as it's current, you've got to be, you know, we get up in the morning at, here in California and work all day at being relevant. And that seemed relevant to me, so I thought I'd mention it. Now, there's one other thing that is, is very relevant. And I may need somebody's help on this. No kidding around. Or I, I, there is something going on right at this moment in 10 minutes. There's a funeral down at Grace Community Church. A, uh, uh, an LAPD, uh, uh, Los Angeles policeman, uh, died just last week in some sort of an accident. Now, the thing is that this young man had evidently been led to the Lord through the ministry of uh, the church up in Aguadulce, ministry, uh, uh, pastored by, by Terry Spear. And Terry Spear is going to be uh, conducting the funeral in just a few minutes. And they expect uh, well over 2,000 people there. And actually, interestingly enough, I happened to be in, in Terry's church uh, preaching for him last Sunday, and that's where I heard this story. What I'm wondering is, is there anybody close by who can tell us a lot more about the story, about the young man and how he came to the Lord? No kidding? Anybody here? Sean, you know, don't you, Sean? Do you, Sean? Hey, Sean, no kidding. Now, this is, this is un- who, who else? Do you know anything about the story is what I'm wondering. I don't know. No, wait, 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 wait. I don't know how he came to the Lord. He's a brand new Christian, was he not? I think he was about two weeks. And there are about six kids, a set of triplets in the family. And how did he die? All right. All right. Now that's what the, those are the details I didn't know. So he's been a believer about his name is Ray. So this gentleman uh, uh, got saved about two weeks ago. Has a large family. That's what I heard in the service last Sunday. And uh, and now his wife has been saved. That that wasn't true when when uh, when I was with them last week. And uh, and the interesting thing is that uh, by reason of the uh, strange restrictions of our of our uh, super sensitive government anymore. The, the chaplain cannot even give the gospel. The chaplain is going to be involved in the funeral, cannot even give the gospel. And so he's asked Terry Spear, uh, who is a good friend, graduate here and so on, to, uh, to conduct the, uh, the funeral. And that's beginning right now. And uh, it, it could be a very, very strategic time. And so I'm going to ask if we could just pray together, if we could just take a minute and pray for that together. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for the marvelous, life-changing gospel which you have made known unto us in your Son and in your Word. We thank you, Father, for the testimony of uh, this young man, for the ministry that, was, uh, that, that you used to reach out to him and to change his life so dramatically. He gave a testimony of how his life had been turned around and he was excited. He was actually struggling with how he could share the gospel with many of his, uh, of his, his uh, fellows on the, on the police force. And now, Father, you've taken him to be with yourself, and there will be a funeral here in just a few minutes. And many of those, his, his co-workers and so on, will sit and listen to the gospel. And I would pray that you might prepare the hearts of many, that there might be a real working of the Spirit. Might you be with Terry Spear and give him unusual freedom and help him to, uh, to uh, know exactly what to say and how to say it in such a way that 
your spirit might drive it home to the hearts of so many who are there who are lost. And I'd pray, Father, that uh, there might be a mighty outworking of the gospel even at this time, right there, down in Grace Community Church as the uh, funeral is held there. And then, Father, I'd pray for the continuing work of the gospel. We know that there will be seed planted at this time that uh, will continue to grow. And, Father, we can but uh, plant and water, but you have got to give the increase. And so we look to you for that. Again, Father, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for the, the happy and delightful dimension of this tragic story. But, Father, we pray that, uh, that uh, in, in the hour to come and, yea, in the days to come then, that uh, that uh, happy dimension of the story might continue to grow and that many might come to you. Again, we'd ask thy special blessing upon Terry as he preaches in just a few minutes. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, thank you. And you might remember to pray for that throughout the day. Now, I would like to spend the time we've got, not a whole lot, but the time we've got, I want to revisit something that we talked about, that I talked about here last year, and that is the doctrine of providence. And I, I want to revisit it because there's something i got to confess to you that, that, that I've got a bone to pick, an axe to grind, or whatever metaphor you happen to like. And uh, so I think it's important. I don't want to just say everything we said before, uh, assuming, of course, uh, powers of total recall on your part. That would be unnecessary, but... But I think it is necessary to just briefly restate some of what we said before. I don't mean to be overly facetious, but, but there is something that, that has grown out of... I, I think you probably, if, if you're around me at all, and you know, that's, I, I think you know that I have a passion for this doctrine of providence. And I think it's a terribly important doctrine, and I think it's one that is in large measure overlooked. I have said many times, I think the evangelical world is in large measure, measure starving for want of a doctrine of, 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 of providence, an understanding of providence. But I think by the same token that it is possible for those who embrace the doctrine of providence, who count it important and, and dear, to actually misuse it and corrupt it to, in such a way and to such a degree that it becomes dangerous. And that's what I'd like to speak to. But let me back up and begin just by defining providence. What do we mean by providence? Well, I wrote out this definition, God's overruling government of the entire moral university, uh, universe. Let me start over. Providence is God's overruling government of the entire moral universe through secondary causes, which causes all things ultimately to answer to his perfect plan and purposes. Now, there are a couple of important things in there. It is God's overruling. God rules in a way that includes the decision-making capability and so on, the, the, the capacity to sin and to make mistakes and so on of image bearers such as you and, and I. And so it is an overruling government of the entire moral universe through secondary Causation. And what we mean by that, and we'll come back to this, is it is not God primarily interjecting himself into history, in which case we have miracle, but it is God working from behind the scenes and, and marvelously arranging the course of human events so that what he longs to come to pass, what he has determined, what he has chosen will come to pass, does in fact come to pass. Now, uh, Oftentimes, and this has to do with what I want to address in a little bit, oftentimes this is represented as sovereignty. As a matter of fact, I would guess that if most of you would take an inventory, uh, you probably haven't used the word providence very much in the last week, but I'd guess that the word sovereignty has rolled off your tongue a number of times. Now, I cherish the doctrine of sovereignty, but I think it is sometimes put to a, to, to a, to a horribly unfortunate use. Sovereignty, by the way... Just real quickly, sometimes some theologians will define or, or identify sovereignty as, a, uh, as an attribute of God. I, I don't think it is properly so called. Uh, sovereignty is a, is a description 
of the strength and scope of God's rule in the universe. He is sovereign. That means his rule is absolute. Okay? When we talk about sovereignty, what we are doing is describing the extent, the strength, the scope of God's influence in human history. He is sovereign. He rules. Theologians go a little further and they say, well, God's rule in the universe can be, can be, can be discussed in two areas. Number one is the physical universe. God actually controls in the physical universe. Colossians 1 says, uh, in him all things consist or held together. Uh, we know that the world is held together by the word of his power. That is, by the way, here's a little theology lecture, forgive me. But that area, in other words, if God's rule is sovereign, but it manifests itself, first of all, in the physical universe, that's what we call preservation. That's historically, classically, the doctrine of preservation. God preserves the physical order. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. He, he provides food for the lions, according to Psalms. He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust, according to Acts. So, so the point is that that's God's preserving ministry. All right, or function. And then on the other hand, God's sovereign rule exercises itself or is exercised not only in the physical universe, but also in the moral universe. What do we mean by the moral universe? That is the metaphysical world. That is the world of decisions and actions. That's the world of motives and choices and so on. And uh, in the moral universe, God rules. And that's what we call providence. Basically, preservation is the government of God, the sovereign rule of God, sovereignty describing the extent and scope or strength of his, of his, of his rule. Preservation is God ruling in the, in the physical world. Providence is God ruling his sovereign rule in the moral universe. But at any rate, providence is then, we can define providence as God's overruling government of the universe through secondary causation for our purposes. Now, let me illustrate that, and I, I'm going to do this real quickly. I've done it before and in the hearing of many of you, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I, I just think uh, that there is no better illustration of the distinction between God's, are you with me, between God's primary rule, where he breaks through and accomplishes his purpose by means of miracle, and God's secondary rule, where he stay, stays behind the scenes and operates from behind the scenes. There's no better illustration of that in the Old Testament than the contrast between the two times when God delivered Israel from a foreign power. I've said before, you, you know the story of God delivering Israel from Egypt. You know the name Moses. You know the story of, of the, the, the burning bush and the plagues upon I Egypt and the, and the death of the firstborn and the, the parting of the Red Sea and the, uh, the, the uh, 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 manna that fell out of the sky and the water that came out of the side of a rock and the walls that fell out of Jericho. All of that is part of the story of God delivering Israel from Egypt. Now, what's remarkable, or, or, or the reason we know that story so well, is because it is absolutely punctuated with miracle. You see the point? God immediately, water flowing out of the side of a rock is a miracle. Only God can do that. Bread falling on schedule every morning out of the heavens uh, is, is a miracle. So we look, and, and here's the point. What did God set out to do? He set out to deliver Israel from Egypt. He did it through miracle. All right, but there is another time in the Old Testament where God delivered Israel from another foreign power, and that foreign power, of course, was Babylon. The remarkable thing about the deliverance of Israel from Babylon is that it involves not one single miracle. 
And what happened, and I'm going to be very brief. Matter of fact, take your Bibles real quickly, and just to make the point, go to Second Chronicles 36. And just very, very briefly, what happened is this. The, the Babylonian government had more or less inherited a policy, we've talked about this in class, called expatriation, whereby if a, if a given nation that they had conquered refused to submit and specifically refused to send them the tribute money, they would carry them off. They would lift them up and rip them out of their homeland and scatter them. Babylon was, was, was replaced by Assyria. Assyria was ruled over by a man named Cyrus. Cyrus, when he conquered the Babylonian Empire and began to establish himself in control of the entire Mediterranean world, he was struck by the reality that there had been so much of this expatriation going on, there had been so many people ripped up and carried off as punishment that, they, 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 that the economic infrastructure of the Mediterranean world was virtually destroyed, Nobody could generate any money, and therefore Cyrus couldn't demand any money of these peoples. And so he decided, and again, that's what I want to stress, out of purely economic considerations, out of political economic considerations, Cyrus said, this is dumb. I've gone to all this work. I've gotten this big army together. I've spent all this money to, to establish empire so that I could demand money, and they can't give me any money. So he decided the best thing to do is to take all these people who have been ripped up out of their homeland and sent off to other land and allow them to go back. And so Cyrus, as you know, went to the Jews, and it's right there in 2 Chronicles 36. He said, I'm going to allow you to go back. But the amazing thing, now, now, now time out for just a second, the amazing thing is that during the days of Babylon, God had raised up a prophet named Jeremiah, and Jeremiah had said, you're going to be carried into another land, you're going to be there for 70 years. For round numbers, we'll say they were carried off in 606. That means they got to go back about 536, right? Well, what happened was, as long as Babylon was in power, the Jews weren't going to be able to go back because they operated on the basis of this policy called expatriation. And it wasn't going to be until Babylon was replaced that they, they'd be allowed to return. But now, what do we just say? They needed to get back there by about 536? In 539... Babylon was destroyed by Assyria. Uh, I'm sorry, by uh, Persia. I said Assyria earlier. I meant Persia this whole time. Go back to your notes. Scratch out Assyria. Put in Persia. Yeah, it's Persia. But at any rate, Cyrus was the Persian Empire uh, emperor. But the point is, in 539, Cyrus destroyed Babylon, and then he began to say to himself, "Hey, I got to let these people go back so they can make me some money." So he issues this decree in 538, and the Jews take a little time to get back there, and finally they get back, and guess what? They lay the foundation of their temple in 536. Now, the point is, to the unbelieving eye, to the eye of a anti, an anti-supernaturalist who denies the place that God demands for himself in human history, that would be just a, a strange series of accidents, just a strange, fortuitous series of of, of, of circumstances that caused, amazingly enough, that prophecy to come to pass. Do you see what I'm saying? Jeremiah says, way back here, you're going to be there 70 years. They're carried off in 606. Uh, they're there until uh, Persia comes along. Persia it, it, it becomes uh, dominant in 539, issues the decree in the back in 536. Well, what I want you to catch is verse 22 of Second Chronicles, uh, Chronicles 36, where the chronicler says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now watch this, in order that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah 25, 11, 70 years, in order that that word might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. I love that. Now I got the King James. As you know, I'm working with the authorized versions, I like to say. 
But uh, I don't know exactly what yours says, but I, that phrase there, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. And that doesn't mean, folks, that doesn't mean that one day Cyrus got up in the morning and he said, who, God's spoken to me, I need to let these people go back. What it means is, as I said to you before, Cyrus looked around and he said, boy, I'm not making any money on this, this is no good. Maybe I'll let these people go back. Yeah, I think that's what I'll do. I'll let them go back. And he gave them the decree. So the point is, here's my question. Was God any less involved in restoring Israel from Babylon than he was in restoring them from Egypt? Absolutely not. But the one was done by means of providence, which means God working through secondary causation. What, sec what do I mean by secondary causation? Babylon is destroyed by Persia. Babylon's policy of expatriation destroys the infrastructure of the Mediterranean world economically. Uh, Cyrus decides, oh, I'm going to make any money out of this. I'm going to let that's secondary causation. But it has the effect of fulfilling God's purposes. That's providence, okay? The best illustration in the, all the Old Testament of God's providential involvement is, of course, the book of Esther. And I won't tell you the Esther story, but you remember Esther 6, verse 1 says... On that night, the king couldn't sleep. Remember the story? The whole fortunes, the whole history of the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, turn on the insomnia of a Gentile monarch. But that's no accident. See, that's the point. That's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to get across to you. God planned it. He used it. He is involved with the minutiae of life. And he uses even the minutiae of life. I mean, there's marvelous stories there's the story I was reading as I was kind of reading this about, uh, uh, I'm not a great student of this period of history or any period of history perhaps, but uh, the story of an archer who, set a, uh, who shot an arrow at, at, at chance and it happened to lodge in the right eye of Harold, the last of the English kings, and therefore the Battle of Hastings went to William the Conqueror and uh, the, 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 the Normans uh, had the throne of England all because of that arrow. Uh, there's a story about Mohammed, uh, the, uh, the prophet Mohammed who was fleeing from those who were intent on killing him because of his apostasy. And he was the apostate of all time, by the way. And uh, he hid in a cave, and no sooner had he scurried into that cave, his pursuers hot upon his heels, that uh, then a, a spider began to spin a web over that, the mouth of that cave. And when his pursuers looked at that, they figured they saw the, the, the web that uh, it must have been there for a good long while. He couldn't be in there, and they went on their way, leaving the uh, kingdom and religion of Islam to the world. So, I mean, it's just there are all these ways that these little tiny minutiae of life have affected, have, have, it's the hinges, if you don't mind, of history that have so profoundly affected uh, the course of history. And I, what I'm telling you is God is involved in those. There are no accidents. That's what I'm telling you. And God oftentimes works. Uh, he does. As a matter of fact, that's what I want to go to. I'd like to describe, and this is where I'm going to get to what I'm, all, what, what I'm after this morning, I'd like to describe the biblical doctrine of providence under five heads. So I'm going to give you five characteristics. And, and it might be good, and you know, you'll throw it away as soon as you get out of here, but it might be good to write these things down if you've got a piece of paper just so we can kind of refer to them. I just want to... And, I, and I'd be interested in your, in your feedback or anybody else's feedback. I'd like to address this from this pulpit because I think it's a very, very important subject and, and I'm going to get to something where I think it's, it's rather uh, roundly abused. But very quickly, let me... And I'll hurry through these, uh, except for I have to stop make, uh You know, I want to vent my spleen, as it were. Uh, I want to characterize the doctrine of providence under, in other, words, in other words, what I want to address is how providence actually fleshes itself out in our lives. If we can say, as an article of faith, that we have a God who is, here comes the word, sovereign, and therefore his rule is limitless in scope and strength, and therefore in both the physical and the moral universe he is intimately involved and he is accomplishing his purposes, how does that then 
flesh itself out in my life. All right, let me give you let me give you a five characteristics or just five fold description, if you don't mind, of what I believe is a doctrinal, a biblical doctrine of providence. Number one, God's providence is constant. God's providence is constant. Now, what I mean by that, and there's a point to be made very, very quickly, what I mean by that is that it has been constant throughout history. This is God's standard method of operation. And I mean that specifically, and I already brought this up, but I mean that in contrast to miracle. There have been seasons of miraculous activity in human history. But God's modus operandi, His standard method of operation is not miracle. All right, God's standard method of operation throughout human history has been providence. That's how God has always wrought and always will work in human history. So number one, I'd say it's constant in terms of history. And then very closely connected to that, and I'll return to the miracle thing, second thing I'd say about a second characteristic of, of, of providence, and this is on the face of it, this is transparent, this is definitional, God's providence is secret. God's providence is secret. That is, it can only be seen by the eye of faith. And I mean that, again, as opposed to miracles. See, the thing about miracles, miracles, number one, are dramatic, and number two, they are visible. And, and therefore, we read in the Scriptures the record of God working miraculously. And let's confess, let's be honest with one another for just a moment, there is deep within our hearts this longing for miracle. We seem to be somehow uh, 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 getting the short end of the stick. We seem to be somehow living in a day less exciting and, and where we don't see God working and so we sort of hunger for miracle. And you know, I believe, by the way, and I addressed this last time I was, I was here, I, I believe that uh, it is that, that terribly uh, dangerous misconception that has led to the, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, big debate today over whether or not there are miracles and this hunger for miracles. And you know that when I'm talking about that, if, if I mean, when I say miracle, I mean no kid around, true blue, top drawer, grade A, bona fide blue ribbon miracle. I'm not talking about, about you know, passing the last test you took. I'm talking about a true miracle. But I, we, have this, we have this passion for, for miracles. And, and I think the reason is because, in fact, miracles are visible, they are dramatic, and, and, and providence is secret. Again, I, I return to... Look, look, I, I asked you this last time. Why is it you know very well the stories about Moses and the deliverance from Egypt. You know that story cold. You've heard it from the time you were a little tiny tyke or tykeette. But on the other hand, <laughs> whatever that means, uh, on the other hand, you don't, you don't know very much. You don't know the story. I, like I say, how many of you, when, when you give birth or when you gave birth to your firstborn son, how many of you had any intention whatever, how many of you think that you will have any intention whatever of naming him Zerubbabel? That, that, that are, that you wouldn't even know that name if you want to come to, to Masters College and we taught it to you in old survey, Old Testament survey, and you slept through that for Pete's sake. But uh, no, but I'm saying, I'm sorry. But but why is it? Why is it that you know the story of Moses so well and the deliverance from Egypt, but you don't know anything about deliverance from Babylon? My 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 stock answer is that the the story of of, of deliverance from Egypt re reduces itself so well to a flannel graph. You know, I mean, you can. You can put that in a flannel graph and you can, you can have this marvelous picture of the seas partying and the people walking through. What are you going to do with Cyrus sitting in his room and saying, man, I ain't making any money on this, you know? <laughs> so, 
See what I'm saying to you? It, the one is dramatic, it's visible, it's, it's, it's tangible, it's palpable. This over here, you've just got to live by faith. You've got to trust that God's at work. So I'm saying to you, I think because miracles are dramatic, because they're visible, there's a tendency to hunger for them. But let me just tell you something. To insist that unless I see God working, my eyes, I'm not going to believe that God is working is a dangerous thing. To me, that is to demand to live by sight when God has demanded that we live by faith. It is to impose upon the universe a plan born of our own desires and not of God's purposes. It is to high-handedly and cavalierly reject the biblical record of God's providential care. Was God able to care for Joseph when his brothers sold him into slavery? You meant it for evil, I meant it for good. He did it providentially, right? Was God able to care for for Esther and Mordecai and the Jews? Was God able to deliver Israel from, from Babylon providentially? You have the testimony of Scripture that's screaming at you that God can affect His purposes providentially without breaking through primarily. Insist upon miracles, I think, is a wicked thing. But leave that alone. I'm saying to you that God's providence, number one, is constant. Number two, it's secret. Number three, very quickly, God's providence is powerful. And by that I mean it can't be frustrated. You, you, you can trust it. God is going to accomplish His purposes. He is a benevolent and wise God. His purposes are both wise and benevolent. You can trust yourself to His purposes, to His providence, as did Paul. But now I come to the nub of the, the matter here in the next just a few minutes. Two things, two other things about it. Number one, God's providence is universal. It does, in fact, we've already, we've already talked about this, but it does, in fact, touch every aspect of life. Both physical, as I say, the 104th Psalm talks about God causing the grass to grow for the cattle. Matthew 5, uh, God makes the sun to rise. He sends the rains. Uh, Matthew 6, He feeds the birds of the sky. Matthew 10, the hairs of your head are numbered. Uh, the, the, a sparrow cannot fall, but what uh, He is aware of it and so on. So it, it, it extends to the physical universe, physical, and it extends to the moral universe. Like I say, some of the most important verses, I'll give you some verses if you want to just jot them down, that point to the doctrine of providence. One of the most important is Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 5-0, verse 2 Genesis 50, 20 is again where Joseph confronts his brothers and he confesses, you meant it for evil. You know, I'm doing that from memory. Is that the right verse? Is it? Somebody looked that up for me. <laughs> All of a sudden, that sounds awful late in Genesis. But, uh, but at any rate, the verse where, wherever it is, you can, you got, you, you got a concordance. But uh, where, 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 uh, uh, yeah, that's it. You thought evil against me, but God meant it for good. And and the point is that uh, uh, Joseph recognizes that even the wickedness of his brothers in hating him and selling him into slavery and then lying to him about his father about all that, God could turn to his own devices. So in the moral universe, God rules even in the wickedness of men. That's perhaps the where this becomes the most difficult. The providential governments of God is how does God's providence interact with man's wickedness? And when man does wickedly, can God be held accountable for that? And by the same token, if God ordained it, can man be held accountable for it? That's where we get into the problem. This is called theodicy. It's one of the sub-points of, of the doctrine of uh, how can we justify the, 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 the character of God given the fact that he tolerates evil. And I believe even uses evil. I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge that God tolerates evil in His universe. That's perhaps a difficulty, uh, you know, stride enough. But then we go to the next place where, according to the doctrine of providence, we're suggesting, we're submitting on the basis of Scripture, I believe, not only does God tolerate evil, He employs it. He uses it. He turns it to His devices. How are we going to handle that? 
We'll come to that. But all I'm saying, I was going to give you some verses. Genesis 50, 20. I think Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, where Paul in a Roman, uh, under Roman imprisonment says, uh, I would have you know that things have happened unto me have fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel and goes on to catalog ways in which God has used his imprisonment. Now, his imprisonment was wicked. He was innocent. He, he, was, he was, first of all, put in jail back there in Jerusalem because of a rumor which was deliberately uh, circulated about him that was an absolute lie. And then uh, he, was, he was under a, a judge who refused, or a, a procurator who refused to release him, though he was innocent, because the procurator wanted a bribe, and the Jews refused to bring witness against him. So all that had happened to Paul was unjust. It was wicked. But Paul was able to say, all these things have happened under the furtherance of the gospel, which is to say God used even these things. That's what I mean when I say God's providence is universal. It's not like, and a lot of people have this idea, quite honestly, that God is sort of, uh, he's in charge of all the good things that happen, and Satan's over here running his own show, you know, and he's in charge of the other things, and God's kind of always reacting, trying to straighten out what, what, what I call the brush fire approach to God's government. You know, uh, uh, God keeps discovering these little brush fires everywhere, and he goes and runs and puts it out. Well, we know better than that, so it includes even the wickedness. Uh, two other verses I was going to give you. Isaiah 10 and verse 7. Assyria is called uh, Assyria, the rod of my anger. Assyria was an implacably wicked. I mean, you study something about the Assyrian Empire, they were unbelievably wicked to the turn to the place where they, they loved to decorate their homes with uh, things made out of human body parts and that sort of thing. I mean, it was just unbelievably wicked people. And they came in and destroyed the northern kingdom and all the wickedness you can imagine. But, but, but the Bible says that they were the rod of God's anger. God was using that to accomplish his purposes. And then one other verse, a remarkable verse, is Acts 2 and verse 28, uh, 23, I'm sorry, Acts 2, 23, where Peter says on the day of Pentecost that Jesus was delivered up. Was there ever a greater sin, a more heinous act than the crucifixion of Jesus by the Jews, uh, the Jews of that day, the Jews of Jerusalem of that day? But anyway, was there ever a more heinous act? And yet Peter says that he was delivered up by the determinant, determinant. That means that which God determined beforehand, counsel and foreknowledge of God. So we know that God can take even the wickedness of men and turn it's universal. But now here's my fifth point, and this is where I'd like to land and be done in just a moment. And that is that God's providence is just. It's universal. It extends to all things, even the wickedness of men. But by the same token, it's just. And what I mean by that, and please understand this, folks. If, if I've lost you, come back to me. This is so important. What I mean by that is that God's providential government, the way he orders the affairs of human history, and I mean that macro and microcosmically, I mean the great big passage of nations and so on, and I mean the affairs of your life. Your life, I mean your family background, where you are at college right now, the, the financial uh, uh, restrictions or, or lack thereof in which you find yourself, all of that is part of God's providential plan. I don't care what it is, your physical health, all of it is part of God's providential plan. But, here's the point. God's providential government is perfectly consistent with the truth of man's moral responsibility. And this is the burr under my saddle. I have heard of late, again and again, on this campus, to be honest with you, or in these circles, very tight, I've heard sovereignty appealed to in such a way as to relieve men of the responsibility for their wickedness or their foolishness. So that no matter what I do, I can say anything, I can do anything, but God's sovereign, He can bring good out of it, so it's okay. So it doesn't matter. And, 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 and I've heard people suggest that your responsibility, if you encounter someone who does wickedly, is to simply say, well, that's okay, because God's sovereign. And He can bring good even out of that. 
So somehow, wickedness becomes acceptable because God's going to do something good with it. That, folks, is dangerous and wicked. The attitude that by reason... and, and, And let me just say, and I start out by saying, I think we need to try and examine what the Bible says about the way God's providence, or if you don't mind, though I think this word is is horribly ill-used in this context, but if you don't mind, the way God's sovereignty works and fleshes itself out in our lives. That's what I want to address. And here's the thing. I know, I acknowledge, it's a mystery. There is in this issue. In other words, here you have, like I say, a sovereign God. That means His rule is limitless. And He works providentially in our lives in the moral universe. And yet He's able to take that which we do, which is wicked, and turn it to His own devices. Doesn't that suggest that somehow... My wickedness is excusable. No. But what I'm saying is the interplay between my ability to make real moral choices, my ability to do things which are wrong and foolish and wicked, the interplay between all of that and God's rule, God's providential rule, is ultimately a mystery. The Westminster Confession calls this the doctrine of concurrence, that in some inscrutable fashion God's plan concurs with our choices to work out his his plan. Uh, uh, other people refer to this as a synergism. Are you familiar with that word? Two things, ergo, working together. Uh, soon, ergo, to work together. Both of those are just big Latin words that, 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 are, that are uttered in the hopes that somebody will think we really said something when we really, we don't know. I mean, I, you know, I've often said that a lot of times the whole business of theology is to surround a thought with enough words that you really think you said something, but uh, when it's all said and done, we don't know. And, and I don't know, and I've told you before, this is a theme of mine, but I've told you before that, that uh, uh, many times in, in theology you have this, this, this intimate interplay between, between the divine and the human. And every time you have that, be it in the person of Christ, be it in the doctrine of salvation, election versus uh, uh, human responsibility, wherever that is, it's going to produce a mystery. And I insist. And I would like to insist personally, if you take umbrage with me on this, honest to goodness, I insist that you have usurped the place of God if you think you've got that taken care of. If you think you've figured that out, you are living in the midst of Isaiah 7. As far as I'm concerned, you've usurped the throne of God. God does not reveal that. That is something that he puts beyond our ken. But having said all that, let me just say this real quickly. I'm convinced. Let me say, I think there are four... This is just my little... You know, I made this up. But it seems to me that you can perhaps define four sub-biblical models of divine providence or God's government. I like to call it... And, and we move... Here's, in other words, the question is, how does God control... How can we understand God's sovereign rule, His limitless rule, if in fact uh, there is sin? And I, and I think we can go from too much control, too little control over here to too much control over here. In other words, this this... There are schools of thought which leave God out entirely. There is, for once, what I call the absentee landlord model. And the idea is that God just sort of gave us the rules and then he left. He went on a long vacation. He's not around. What happens, happens. He's not in charge. He's going to come back and clean up the mess at the end. I don't believe that. Do you? That's, you know, like God just isn't involved. That's thorough Pelagian Arminianism doctrine. Then there is what I like to call the divine gasp model. And I think a lot of us are close to that. And that's what I mean. What I mean by that is that God's constantly going, Ooh, look at that. You know, he's, he looks down here and, I mean, you know, it's like he's involved, but things keep taking him by surprise. And he has to run down there and take care of this, see? Like, like the Red Sea. Ooh, those people, they're all trapped. I better, you know, where the fact is, God led them there. It was the glory cloud that took them there. He didn't take him by surprise. 
So that's too little control. Now we move over here. I think we're getting closer to us. They have what I call the house pet model. And what I mean by that is this. you got a house pet. you got some dog or cat or something at home. And you can train him to do a lot of things. And you can get him to react the way you want him to react. And you can even read a lot of things into what he does and think is very cute and all this sort of thing. But now, if we're honest, and I know this is painful with regard to Fido or whatever, but if we're, if we're honest, we know that that's not a thinking moral agent. And sometimes I think we think that God sort of treats us like house pets. We have a certain limited ability to move around and so on, but really, it's all said and done. It's all taken care of in the, in the past. And so really, God's entirely he's, he's in control almost. And from there, I go to what I call the uh, puppet theater model, where really all we are are so many marionettes, and, and God's up there pulling all the strings. And this is some sort of empty charade. And you could almost say philosophically that God's the only true being in the universe, and all of us are, are, are just play actors, little puppets that he's, he's taken through. Now, all of those, is wrong. All of those are wrong. So how are we to understand God's governance of the universe? Well, let me say again, it's a mystery. I think it can be reduced to this. You've heard me say it before. Matter of fact, help me. If anything good happens, what? God gets all the credit, right? If anything bad happens, man gets all the blame. I think that's if you wash it all away. In other words, what I'm saying is that... You do have... Now watch this, please. God does rule. But He rules in such a way, and we can't fully understand this, but clearly it is the teachment of Scripture, and it's an all-important thing. He rules in such a way that His rule involves your choices, and those choices are real. In other words, God is God, and I am not, but I am an image-bearer. I bear his image, and as such, I have both the capability and the responsibility of making choices. And those choices have consequences. They have moral weight. And God is going to hold me accountable when I make a wicked choice, even though he can turn it to his own devices. Does that make sense to you? What I'm saying is, relish the doctrine of providence. Rest in the doctrine of providence. But as you do so, be very, very careful. I was going to read you a, a section. I won't take time. We've got to be done. Out of Charles Hodge, who makes this very point very, very, very eloquently. Be careful that you don't fall into this ditch where you assume that God's completely in control and nothing we do makes any difference. Or this ditch over here where you think God has absented himself from the universe. And, and my, my personal application or my personal uh, uh, exhortation would be simply this. I return to it. Understand that within the scope of God's providential rule of your life, you have choices to make, you are a moral agent, you will stand accountable for the choices you make, and never, never hide behind the blessed doctrine of providence or sovereignty to excuse yourself from the reality of those moral choices. Does that make sense to you? That is all important. And uh, like I say, I, I, I told somebody the other day, it seems to me that we have almost the perfect model although it can't be fully understood, almost the perfect model in, uh, in uh, Joshua and Moses. And the Amalekites, remember the Amalekites? Remember you got Moses up there holding his hands aloft, representing the fact that it won't, it, it, nothing could be done except as God provides. You have Joshua down there duking it out with the Amalekites, you know, swinging the sword and, 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 and running it through, you know, the, the bellies of the Amalekites. Now listen, 
if Joshua, if, if Moses had stayed home, would they have won the battle? No, of course not. So we know that we depend upon God. And if anything good happens, it's because God enabled it to happen. He gets all the credit. But if Joshua would have stayed home, would they have won the battle? Absolutely not. The fact of the matter is that God expects Joshua to be down there duking it out and swinging the sword. And if I can apply that to your life, it is true that there is a God who rules. You are absolutely dependent upon Him. Any fruit, any, any blessedness in your life, He gets all the credit. But it is also somewhat mysteriously true that you have a responsibility to obey what God sets before you. And you have the capacity to make real moral choices for which you are, in fact, going to give account. Okay, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer here. I'm almost on time. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we do thank you for the, the confidence we can have in your moral government. Father, we have come to know you not only as a king, but as a father. And we know that as a king you do rule, but as a father you will not withhold that which your children need. And you love your children. And we can approach you as, as our Papa, our Abba Father. We thank you for that marvelous relationship that we have. But Father, help us always remember in the midst of that, in the face of all of that blessed truth, that we are, in fact, a moral agents with a stewardship from you to obey and to do righteously. And that we will give answer when we fail, when we sin against you and rebel against you and thus fail in that stewardship. Father, again, I'd remember even at this moment, Terry, and I'd ask that you might again just marvelously minister in that place. At this moment, we, we bring them up before you, we lay them before you and ask that Terry might be, uh, might be uh, used of your spirit in a powerful way even at this moment uh, as he gives the gospel to that multitude down there. Again, thank you for this time together now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are done. Thank you.